I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode three of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Lenny Zeltzer. Lenny is a seasoned business and tech leader with extensive information security expertise. As a product portfolio owner at a Fortune 500 company, he's responsible for the financial success and expansion of his organization's security services and SaaS products. He has also been a national lead of the security consulting practice at Savis, which was later acquired by CenturyLink, where he managed the U.S. team of service professionals. Lenny helped shape global InfoSec practices by teaching incident response and malware defenses at the SANS Institute and by sharing knowledge through writing, public speaking, and community projects. He has earned the prestigious GAC Security Expert Professional designation, and he also developed the Linux toolkit Remnux, which is used by malware analysts throughout the world. Lenny's on the board of director of SANS Technology Institute and on the advisory board of Minerva Labs. Lenny's approaches to business and technology have been built upon his work experience, independent research, as well as a computer science degree from the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA degree from MIT Sloan. His expertise is strongest at the intersection of business, technology, and information security, and spans incident response, InfoSec cloud services, malware analysis, and business strategy. To really get a full sense of Lenny's thought process and knowledge areas, do take a look at his blog at zeltzer.com. In this interview, we will discuss why he's so passionate about information security, how he stagnated in information security and went back to grad school, who's inspired him along the way, his personal challenges asking for advice, why he developed Remnux to make malware analysis accessible to so many people, refining communication skills to both technical and non-technical audiences, building industry relationships, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. Thanks so much for listening. Okay, I'm sitting with Lenny Zeltzer, a security researcher and one of the instrumental people in doing a lot of the SANS reverse engineering malware courses. Lenny, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. That's oh, exciting to be here. Well, thanks. Uh, and we're sitting in your beautiful home in Brooklyn. So thanks for having me here. And uh, I'd say it is an excellent cup of coffee. So if anybody uh, you know wants to know, Lenny can also make a good good cup of coffee. Oh, good, good. I'm, so I'm there's always just a, learning. Yeah, there's always a backup to information security is coffee. Okay. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your kind of background and how you ended up in information security. I just kind of stumbled upon it, I suppose. Uh, for, for the longest time, I have been thinking about my career progression as just going with the flow, kind of going where the job opportunities take me as long as that's aligned with my interests. And and that that's that's worked for me more or less. And so... The reason I stumbled into security is because I used to do a lot of system administration of Unix systems and of Windows systems. And uh, and we were setting up some uh, 
business critical applications for a financial services company and they realized that it's probably a good idea to put something more than a router between the servers we're putting together and the big bag internet. Sure. What about what, what was the time frame of this that? This was uh, mid to late 1990s. Yeah, back in the 20th century. Yeah. And so, uh, so anyway, so uh, because I was a sysadmin, it was deemed that maybe I would be the one learning about this firewall thing. So I went to checkpoint training, and it was fascinating. I loved it, and and it it appealed to my desire to to keep things neat and organized and orderly and by extension safe yeah hey as a sysadmin you, you you want everything to be you know structured and under your control and a firewall gives you a level of control at the network level so anyway so that's i got into security because i had an opportunity to to set up a firewall no one else on the team could do it and and i uh, was able to learn how to set it up and that also appealed to my desire, again, as a sysadmin, to lock down a system to turn off unnecessary services. Again, because I'm a neat freak. And, and, and yes, it turns out it's good for security. But you know what? Just disabling applications, services that you don't need is also good for just operational stability of a box. So that also appealed to my desire and interest in, in security. And so anyway, that's how I stumbled into it. And, and ultimately... I like security because it is at the intersection of so many other disciplines within IT, be it system administration or network administration or software development, right? A lot of those areas intersect in security. So that's how I got into the field to begin with. And, and what keeps you passionate about continuing to do it? I mean, what's the driving force of where you said, well, I'm not, I'm, you know, not shifting to somewhere else, but really staying with it after all these years? Uh, well, uh, hmm. so uh, it, it turns out, as I realized later, that, that I, I really enjoy locking things down and keeping them safe. Now, I got into IT. I'm a computer guy. I don't know much about physical security. I'm not really good with building stuff with my hands. Uh, I'm more of a, I operate better at a logical level. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I could have been... Uh, fulfilling my interest in keeping things safe through physical security, but that's not where my opportunities uh, took me. And so uh, what keeps me engaged in the industry is that idea that you want to safeguard important information, important data. And there are so many different ways to do it. I've always been on the defensive side of the house. And, and I think it's, it's fascinating because there's just always something new you need to learn. And I'm not even talking about something new with respect to threats that are always evolving. Of course, we all know that. But also, IT keeps changing at such a rapid stage. And just when you thought you knew how to lock down an environment because you can, I don't know, fine-tune the configuration of Apache. Next thing you know, no one's using Apache. Now it's some other technology. And, and, and next thing you know, no one's hosting their own servers anymore. And now it's outsourced. And next thing you know... They're not even outsourcing servers. They just want to deploy an application into an engine that abstracts the reality of a server or a web application. Uh, so there's always so much to learn, and that keeps you engaged. One of the things I noticed, too, is that you, so you, you have your computer science degree from University of Pennsylvania, uh, but you went back for your MBA 
to MIT. Why did you go for an MBA as opposed to maybe master's in information security or information sciences? Huh. So at that point in my career, this must have been oh God, over a decade ago, I guess. Time flies so quickly. At that point in my career, I got very tired and bored of security, actually. It, it goes back to, to what I was just saying earlier, which would imply that I, it's so easy to find something new and exciting that keeps you engaged, but, but maybe that's over, oversimplifying things too much. So at that point, I just, I just got tired because I wasn't seeing uh, enough newness in my environment. Uh, it seemed like we're, we as an industry, or at least I won't generalize, me as an individual within the industry was being asked to solve the same problems and come up with very similar solutions to them. So I just got tired and I wanted something new. And, and what a great opportunity to, to take a break for a bit and, and just to go, to go to college again, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you can afford it or take loans if, if, if you're able to do so. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to just go to grad school for a couple of years and, and see how I feel about the industry when I come back to it. And now the question is, if I'm going to go to grad school and if I'm going to do it full time rather than doing a part time program, which I wouldn't be able to do with just too much workload. I, I don't think I could, could keep up with that. I, I am very impressed with, with individuals who are able to do grad school part time while working full time. It's, it's incredibly difficult. So. I was thinking, where, what should I do in grad school? And I already have a degree in, in engineering and computer science. So I thought, you know what, Let, let's see what, what business is like. Um, because maybe I want to go into something else. Maybe I want to go to management consulting. Or maybe I want to switch careers to do, I don't know, business strategy for, for some corporation. Or maybe I want to do a startup thing, which I had tried at that point beforehand and, and failed miserably at it. So yeah, business seemed like an, an opportunity to see something new and be exposed to people from different walks of life because that to me was very important. I think one of the reasons why I felt like I was stagnating as an IT and security professional at the time was because I kept interacting with the same circle of professional colleagues and friends and, and that contributed towards what sometimes people uh, call a, an echo chamber. And, and I wanted out of it. And MBA programs are designed to bring lots of different people together. And yes, focusing those people's attention on learning how to run a business or how, how to um, ensure financial success of, of some kind of a venture. But uh, yeah, it seemed like a great way to, to see something new and then decide whether I want to switch careers maybe. So in, in kind of out of that program, did you, or during that program, did you incorporate as part of, um, you know, whether you're working on different types of papers, aspects of information security for modeling uh, different security businesses, or did you still kind of keep the information security in the back burner and really just focus purely on just kind of general business strategy? So I had very little time to, during my MBA years, the, the two years that, that it took me to get the degree to do anything that was not focused on, on working on that degree because the program was just really hard. It, it, it took me outside of my comfort zone quite a bit. I was able to stay engaged with SANS and do, uh, I think at the time I was uh, participating in the Internet Storm Center as a handler and uh, I was able to, to maintain my, uh, my, my ties to the industry through 
presenting at science conferences and teaching there. But, but really, it felt like for, it actually wasn't two years, but let's say a year and a half, I'd pulled myself out of the industry for the most part to focus on something else. And, and kind of touching on the SANS point, how, how did you get involved with SANS? I mean, what, what was kind of the, the, the moment that, that, that you got drawn into SANS? So this must have been also probably late 1990s. That point, I was I had a bit of exposure to doing intrusion detection, network intrusion detection at work, as well as uh, as I mentioned earlier, doing some firewall stuff. And I and I thought, hmm, I kind of know this. This is this is pretty good. I think I figured it out. But my work was willing to send me to a a training course. And I thought, all right, let's let's see let's see what other people are doing in this field. But I came, so I took the sands intrusion detection course that was my first one that was taught by Stephen Northcutt at the time and I came into the course thinking I know most of the stuff but fine I'll I'll see what I what I can gather from hearing Stephen talk about this and I was I was wowed by by how little I knew it turns out just I was I was so humbled, you know. Here I am thinking I've been doing intrusion detection for like a year now. Certainly, I know everything there is to know about this space. And granted, maybe at the time there was less to know about it than there is now. But but really, it turned out that I was just way too cocky, and and that made me realize how much there is to know in security in general, and how important it is to actually try to specialize in some area within it. Because for a while, I thought of myself as being a generalist that could do most of the things necessary to, let's say, deploy an application and keep it secure. And today, we still have the term uh, full-stack engineers that sometimes people used to refer to software developers that can, can, can create code at different levels of an application stack. But I am very skeptical that one can be really good at all of these levels today because just technology is much more complex. But so anyway, at the time, I was still feeling like, you know, maybe I can do it all. And, but gradually realizing that, no, probably not. Because if you want to be really good at network intrusion detection, you've you got to spend all of your time thinking about that and, and looking at network packets and, and trying to understand how do you see patterns in network flows. And then afterwards, because I was working with some firewalls and I realized that it turns out maybe I don't know as much about firewalls as I think I do, I took the SANS network perimeter security course. And so I just started getting involved with the SANS community. At the time, SANS was just creating its first certification through its GIAC organization, and so I was one of the first individuals who took that that exam, and and that was interesting to me because you know it was important. I was I was doing consulting at the time, so it was quite important to have certifications, not only to give me an opportunity to define a milestone for myself that I want to hit, but also to signal to others that I know this stuff. And uh, yeah, I guess that that was how I, I got sucked into the whole science community. And it is uh, there, there's always some gateway drug. <laughs> I, I hear this with many other people who have been uh, training and learning from from the science community. There, there's some some way in which you perhaps accidentally find yourself at one of these courses, and then you get addicted to it. And then, how did you kind of grow from kind of just being more the observer and the consumer to actually? 
generating course material and being a instructor? So it all began from a SANS conference that I was attending as a, as a student. I forget which course I was taking at the time, possibly network perimeter security and firewalls course. But um, at, at, at these events, uh, we sometimes have breakout sessions in the evening, t- birds of a feather sessions to tackle some, some interesting challenge. And uh, one of the sessions that I ended up attending was looking at a suspicious Windows executable that somebody came across and asking the rest of the community questions about how to best tackle the problem of trying to understand what can this program do. And I was fascinated by trying to figure that out because as it turned out, no one knew how to do it at the time. Or I should qualify, no one outside of the antivirus industry knew how to do that kind of work at the time. And the the AV industry in those days was much, much more closed and isolated. And they were unwilling to share, they were very protective of of their know-how. So if you weren't a part of an antivirus company, then you didn't know how to examine malicious software. Because why should you know? You, you come across malware and surely antivirus will protect you or your antivirus company will generate a signature for it, right? That was the, the mentality. But anyway, as we were realizing, no, actually, you do come across malicious programs or suspicious programs that you might need to take apart to understand the threat that they might pose to you and knowing you had to do it. So at the time, I was doing a bit more software development that I do now. And I was still very fresh from having been doing a lot of hands-on system administration. So I thought, wait a second, I think I I can use the tools that I use for my normal day-to-day job to figure this out. Tools like what is available from sysinternals, for example. At the time, it was file monitor and registry monitor that are now combined into a tool called process monitor. You know, th- th- these tools that a sysadmin knows how to do to troubleshoot a, a system level problem, they can tell me something about how a malicious program runs. So um, I was at the time working on creating on a practical assignment for one of my SANS certifications. And I thought, let me make this my topic. Let me, let me write a paper that looks at a potential malicious executable and explains how to analyze it. And so uh, this was, um, now, now I remember, this was as part of my GCIH, the Incident Handling Certification. Yeah. And I submitted the paper and didn't pass because the feedback was, it's a great paper. It talks about malware analysis, but that's not what we asked. <laughs> the focus was much more in incident handling. And at the time, no one quite knew how to categorize this whole thing about analyzing malware because that feels like something antivirus companies should be doing. So anyway, I adjusted my paper so that it did eventually meet the requirements and it was accepted. Uh, but the, the fascination with the topic didn't go away. And so I was given an opportunity to give a two-hour evening talk at SANS about this stuff and and I did and that was one of my first experiences doing public speaking and I didn't do all that well but I guess it went well enough that Sands invited me to give this talk again at another conference in the evening and it was well attended and people liked it and as I was getting more interested in the topic of analyzing malware I started 
realizing that I have more to share <laughs> with other people based on just the discoveries that I'm making. And again, all of this stuff was was very familiar probably to people in the AV world, but it was fascinating and and completely unknown to individuals outside of that, that industry. And so as I was learning things, I was sharing them with others through these evening course, uh, evening talks that I was giving at Sans. They weren't really full courses until one day Sans said, wait a second, maybe we should do this like a, a, an experimental course. I mean, um, at the time, it, it was such a niche topic. Who would want to know this this sort of stuff? Who, who would care about reversing malware themselves? But let, let's see if we can do this course that will offer in the evening across two evenings, maybe three hours across per, per evening across two evenings. Yeah, and, and that's how it began. And, and then um, there was enough interest in the community that, that uh, Sans decided to turn this into a two days long course, a two day course. Yeah, and, and that's how it began. Now it's a it's a five day, and now it's a six, six day, day actually. Course. Yeah, yeah. Now it's a it's a real by by sense standards a full fledged week long week being defined here as six days course. Yeah, and and look, there's of course now thinking back at those early days, this must have been let's say early two thousands. It feels so primitive, right? How, how could you think that malware analysis wasn't relevant to incident responders, for example? But no, we've come a long way as an industry since those days. And, and maybe at the time, indeed, it was a niche topic because we were still learning how to do the basics. And before you can do something a little bit more elaborate, like debugging a malicious program that might be designed to prevent you from debugging it, before you do that, then, you know what, let's figure out how to set up your firewall or to disable unnecessary Windows features to begin with, you know? So it's, it's good to see now. I mean, we, we love to talk about how we all suck. Oh, attackers keep getting better. We keep getting hacked. And, but, but, you know, if you take a step back and look at where we were over a decade ago, you know, what? We've, we've come a long way. And it's going to be fine. I'm sure 10 years from now, we're going to be still feeling the pain and, and, and we, we love to complain, and that's fine. It's a way of... I guess, us dealing with our stress. But, uh, you know, we, we do progress. It's just that you don't see it when you're in the middle of it, doing your, your work from day to day. So as you were getting started, you know, kind of with SANS and other, other areas of security research, who were some of the mentors that you had and, and people that you kind of uh, got help from along the way? Hmm. Uh, for, for me, just interacting with the SANS instructors um, has been instrumental and and they they've inspired me to keep doing more with what i know and keep 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 learning more and and, and that's both when i was a student right i mentioned i think my my most uh, my aha moment came from attending a course that stephen north gave, gave uh, in, in intrusion detection and then the next course that i took uh, Chris Brenton uh, was a SANS instructor that was teaching the perimeter security course. And then the next took that I took from Ed, the, the next course that I took from Ed Scotus, who was focusing on incident response. I think when I think back to those early days for me of getting started in the industry, that those are the individuals that showed me how much more there is to to doing this kind of work, and they 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 inspired me to want to achieve that that level of knowledge and something within the field. 
When you think back to some of the different types of career advice or lessons you received, uh, what were some of those moments and, and maybe who were some of those people that gave you those specific types of career advice? Or... I am very bad at asking for career advice and therefore I don't, or historically I haven't actually, but I'm going through a lot of self-reflection now, just thinking about where am I heading as an individual? Maybe it's a part of my midlife crisis experience, I'm not sure. Um, but, but in general, I have never known how to ask for career advice because I felt that, I don't know why, <laughs> and maybe this is turning into a psychotherapy session, but I, uh, I felt that how can I ask career advice from somebody if they don't know me, right? And, and, and for them to get to know me, it would take them some time to understand what drives me, what my interests are, where my hopes might be. And so uh, really my, most of my career advice came from my close and personal friends who are not necessarily in the security industry, but who are able to act as, as sounding boards and, and, and as, a, as a source of encouragement. I'm, I'm assuming two things are, haven't always been, uh, don't always work out in your favor. It does, does in life, and particularly with security. Um, have there been any things that you've looked at, maybe, and you talked a little bit maybe about the past business, but you know, failures that you looked at as a failure at that time that you look back now really kind of set you up for future success? Hmm. Well, I, I think the way that we internalize any failure is we... We, we turn them into, or in our mind, as, no, no, that wasn't a failure. That was a learning experience, right? So uh, I'm sure that I can look at anything that had gone wrong and, and tell you about how it was actually a learning experience that made me a, a better person and a better security professional. Uh, but but um, I can think of one particular scenario where I was responsible for security of a startup organization that was building a it was during the dot-com days, let's just say that. And of course, the mentality there was, let's build it for scale. We don't have any customers yet, but tomorrow we could have a million of them hitting our websites, and what are we going to do then? Well, let's, let's make sure we've got the properly clustered firewalls and load balancers and super-duper switches, and of course, the vendors were glad to assist uh, whether you're talking about networking gear or, or high-end storage or processing. And that was before you, the, the mentality of, we'll just run it on Amazon and, right. and, <laughs> and, and procure equipment as we need it. So I feel that I allowed my vendors at the time to take me for a ride because they were only willing to assist me in designing my completely fault-tolerant super scalable environment and they weren't doing anything that was unethical they were responding to my requests which was create an architecture or help me design an architecture that's completely full tolerant and that can handle millions of requests per millisecond right, right. Um, but but i realized that uh, you know there's only so much you can rely on, on third parties for advice. And, and, and you need to be educated in asking the right questions and giving the right guidance. Otherwise, you're gonna get exactly what you asked for, but maybe that 
you're asking for the wrong thing. And so we ended up spending so much money, so much money on our hosting facilities and uh, the startup eventually folded because we never did get <laughs> as many millions of customers as we were hoping and at that point needed to get in order to pay for all of those. And what was some, what was, yeah, I guess, what would be that, that kind of lesson that, that you've learned from that? I mean, when you're looking uh, back. My, my lesson is know what you're asking for and understand yeah, your needs, but also understand the technology so that you can balance out your vendor's interests in selling you as much as possible, right? And know when to say, you know what, to yourself, I, I have aspirations, but I also need to be realistic about what I can afford today rather than mortgaging my future that eventually could cause my business to be financially unsolvable, uh, insolvent rather. So so that's, I mean, that, that to me was was highlighted the importance of just knowing what you're doing in the IT space rather than completely outsourcing all of your advice to somebody else. You need that. You can never know everything, and especially today. We talked earlier about the need to specialize. You will always be asking third parties for advice, but you also need to be skeptical and, and, and have a, a good dialogue that uh, um, uh, requires your, your advisors to justify the solutions they're providing to you. You know, kind of shifting gears a little bit, you know, one of the things that, you know, besides the, <clears throat> the, the course development and some of the other research you've done, you, you did uh, participate in writing a book. What, how is that process when, when you have to kind of stop and change gears as now put on your kind of author hat? What was that process like in developing and write, helping uh, Stephen write the book? So you're referring to the book Inside Network Perimeter Security. Correct. And and I was a there were two editions of the book. In the first book, we had a, a large team of co-authors, and and I had the responsibility of being the the primary person who pulls all of the content together, which was a fantastic opportunity to interact with other practitioners in the industry and actually try to take all of their advice. And, and, and various co-authors were responsible for various chapters, but I had to make sure, in addition to writing my own chapters, that all of our advice fits together into a reasonable narrative. And it turned out to be really hard and really, really, really time-consuming. Um, I, I loved it. I loved it because I'm very much motivated by trying to distill complex advice into something that individuals can absorb and, and learn from and find useful. And that's why I have authored and continue to maintain and revise the malware analysis course at SANS, because I just love taking that difficult topic and, and trying to make it accessible to people from all walks of life. And, and, and so writing a book is, is very much like that. The big challenge for me was dealing with lots of different Authors. We, we had in the first edition a very large authoring team, and you know people write their content using different styles. But the reader shouldn't care that the chapters happen to have been written by different individuals, right? It needs to be, I feel, a, a, a cohesive narrative with a single voice, and that turned out to be very difficult. And uh, and so when doing a second edition of that book that came out around, I think, two thousand. Five. Uh, I, I purposefully trimmed down 
the the authoring team. So we had a, a smaller core team of individuals that already having gone through the experience of doing this once together for the first edition was able to to work much better together. And uh, and I feel that the, the resulting product was was a, of a higher quality as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, in along the lines of you know, kind of contributing in that way, you certainly also contribute with uh, by developing uh, Remnux. And for those listening, you might not know it's a, it's a great platform for reverse engineering malware. Um, but you give that away as part of a kind of a free distribution. Why would you not commercialize something like that and try to build it as a commercial product? Hmm. Well, so Remnux is essentially an Ubuntu Linux distribution into which I installed a bunch of tools that I didn't write. So I feel it would be disingenuous of me to try to somehow sell it uh, for my own uh, direct benefit. Uh, plus, it's, it's, it's open source, right? There is, there is a practical uh, license restrictions uh, uh, forbidding you from, from doing certain things with open source tools that, that other people have, have written. Uh, of course, there there are business models that exist around the open source community. I mean, we we, we see it everywhere. Even firms that that like like Ubuntu, uh, found, for example, are able to charge for support. So yeah, the, I mean, there is a way to to commercialize and derive financial benefit from an effort that's based on on open source. It's um, I mean, it's it's an interesting idea. I I, uh, I I've never. Uh, given it serious thought because I always look at Remnix as, again, just a collection of tools that other people have written. These are uh, fantastic, very useful tools that are oftentimes a pain to install. I like to use them. I had to install them. And if I figured out how to do that, let, you might as well g give it to people as a pre-built virtual appliance so that they don't have to go through some of these pains. I... Um, I've always been very interested in making the field of malware analysis accessible to as many people as possible because it's a, it's a technically advanced field. It scares a lot of people when they think about having to look at programs that are designed to hurt them. It is uh, uh, discouraging for many people to think about trying to debug and look at code at the assembly level, for example. So I've always been thinking, how can I make this as accessible to people as possible and, and as uh, friendly as possible to people? And so, so Remnix is an extension of, of that objective. And that is, there are a lot of tools that are helpful. They're hard to find, they're difficult to install. If I put them into one place and get all these tools working well together, then maybe that will encourage more people to enter the field. And and uh, ultimately, that means that there'll be more individuals that end up gaining the skills necessary to, to deal with, with, with the threat of malicious software. Yeah, I think that's, that's a kind of a key component is trying to get those. You know, when I think back to early days of information security, of setting up a lab, and we're talking about procuring things and setting things up, you know, now with, with what you can do in virtualization, you can basically do... Um, a lab and a very, with the amount of computing power and the amount of virtualization, you can do things on your own laptop and set up ways to analyze things. Uh, so it's great that something is out there uh, that that is you know kind of open source and free. Are there other tools or other things that you look at that in that same light that say 
now um, are a reduced barrier of entry to getting into the field that you know 10, 15 years ago you didn't have access to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, let's start with, with the basics. That is VMware or VirtualBox. The idea of virtualization software that we all take for granted now. It's phenomenal that this technology is available to us, and it's phenomenal, of course in a larger context of cloud computing and, and how it's changed the way in which we build and deploy applications. But I remember sitting in my office, I don't remember, this must have been again late 1990s, and somebody told me about this tool called VMware. And they said, you can run Windows inside of Windows and you can run Linux at the same time in another window. And to me, it sounded like magic. Really? How is that even possible? You've got to be kidding me. But I, I tried it, and it actually worked. Unbelievable, just the, uh, that, that, that concept that we all take for granted now. So, but that's, that's old news, uh, of course. I just thought I'd mention it because the, I look at the availability of virtualization technology as, as something that's affected our industry at large, but specifically made malware analysis much easier. But but nowadays, in, in the more recent developments, you've got uh, fantastic automated malware analysis sandboxes that are available. Some of them are commercial tools. Some of these are available for free. And, and that's wonderful because as much as I feel it is important for organizations have, to have the expertise for taking malware apart in a more manual way, because you, you need a human intellect to, to analyze some of the more difficult problems you're going to encounter, we cannot handle all the malware that's out there manually by hand. It's just not, not feasible, right? We need tools, automated tools, that allow us to sift through thousands, in some cases millions, of, of samples. And that's what you get with fully automated malware analysis sandbox solutions. And that's fantastic because someone can get started in the field of looking at malware by feeding one of these sandbox tools, uh, suspicious executable, and looking at the report that the tools generate automatically. Now, some of these reports are easy to read and, and things are obvious. It tells you it injects code into the Windows Explorer process. Somebody might see that and say, aha, now I know what's going on. Other people might say, what does it mean to inject code? And so, even though the report that you get is automated, you still need to know something about how Windows works, for example, to understand fully the, the relevance of the report's findings to yourself. And so I'm encouraged by seeing people asking questions like, what is process injection? How is that possible? Because then that gets you curious about what else can I learn about this malware? The, there's always limitation in what automated analysis can give you. And we see that in, in all fields within forensics where it's very painful and slow to analyze, I don't know, file system level artifacts by hand using a hex editor, but we don't have to anymore. We've got automated tools that can assist us that, 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 that magnify our power. And we're seeing a lot of that happening in the field of malware analysis and reverse engineering as well. Do you think there is a risk though too with automated analysis that people can um, almost get a false sense of confidence and mm. rely a little too heavily at it at times? Yeah, I think uh, sometimes that's bound to happen, right? You, you, you um, hmm. 
Um, so it, it probably is happening. I, I don't know how many people realize that there's only so much automation can do. Um, it only shows you one path, one possible path of the program's execution. The reason why it's important to know for severe incidents, how to look at the code of the program is that you're able to see what else the program can do in addition to what you observed it doing when you simply ran it in your environment or in an automated sandbox. So, so maybe some people just run a, a program in a, in a sandbox and they think it's benign and it turns out to be malicious. But I, I think the feedback and the punishment for the incorrect conclusion is, is pretty fast as well. So I suspect people will learn. So I, I do think that in general, the use of automated sandboxes is, is make our, in, our, our, our environments safer uh, and is also uh, bringing awareness to the importance of knowing what malicious programs do and uh, in some cases being able to justify the need to take a much more careful look uh, at a program, be it by interacting with it in a more manual way in your laboratory environment when you run it, or by actually being able to put it into a disassembler and a debugger and, and, and seeing what else can it do that perhaps you have not observed. You know, and kind of stepping back and looking at it, <clears throat> looking at things more to a, a broader scale, you know, when you think, you know, there was recently the, the uh, distributed denial of service attacks from things like, uh, from the Internet of Things devices, do you think there's any technology or we're in a place where we're over-adopting certain technology without weighing all the risks as a, as a consumers and possibly society as a whole? I think we're typically adopting technology without weighing all the risks because as, as humans, we're very eager to try new things and to have more things and things are good. We want more things. Give us more things. And that means... You know, the first generation of cars not having seat belts because maybe at the time that wasn't necessary. They couldn't go fast enough. But eventually we recognized that certain uh, safety precautions need to be added to vehicles and car belts were adopted. So I, I think we're finding the same uh, properties exist in, in other uh, types of, of things uh, that, that, that involve interacting over the network, right? We want a video camera that allows us to keep an eye on our home even when we're not there. Cool, here's one that you can plug into the internet and, and now I can keep an eye on my home when I'm on vacation. Mm, yes, that's convenient, but who else can have access to that camera or who else might be able to log into it and then use that camera device in ways that you didn't anticipate. So fine, we, we have events that highlight the importance of locking it down and then vendors will respond because presumably consumers will demand certain things and maybe regulators will demand certain uh, precautions. So to me, that's just a part of the natural evolution of, of technology that humans adopt. In, in looking at um, you know, just the, the current security landscape, is what, I guess what worries you most about the, kind, the, the current state of things when it comes to data privacy and security? Hmm. I, I don't worry much. I don't know if you got a sense uh, uh, of, of that. I, I tend to have a very pragmatic view on the world. And, and when I think back to our history as a civilization, we've, we've managed to survive long enough without destroying ourselves yet. And I, f I think we'll be okay in the future. So I, I feel that whatever, whatever problems we'll encounter, we will be able to withstand. But maybe that now we're getting too philosophical, and, and let's, let's be a bit more pragmatic. I think that we are still struggling with securing our endpoints because they're used by those pesky humans that tend to do things that IT professionals just wish they wouldn't do 
like open word documents or click on links you know we can't just if only we could get rid of those humans our systems would be so much safer so uh, endpoints continue to be a problem but again am i worried about them i mean not necessarily whenever there's a problem there are entrepreneurs who come up with interesting and innovative ways of solving those problems and and so that's just a, a natural part of the, the cycle of innovation. So, uh, so I think interesting things are happening on the endpoint because um, locking them down continues to be a challenge. Similarly, um, how do you perform forensic investigation of lots and lots of systems in a large enterprise environment where endpoints are distributed across the world and we're not just talking workstations but servers? That's hard, and, and it's... It's hard because it means that if you're doing incident response, you have to be very selective about which specific systems you look into because it's just so time-consuming to gather a whole lot of information unless you've got some of the newer tools that vendors are making available to you, and, and that's pretty exciting. Again, it's, it's a problem because it's hard to do incident response and forensics across a large number of systems, but whenever there's a problem, there are solutions that are popping up. And, and also another area that I am thinking about but don't yet know enough about is the a broader adoption of applications that are deployed into remote clouds as code and in those environments the the notion of bringing up a server to run your application no longer applies because you just feed code to a third-party system that knows how to deploy it and how to spin up infrastructure behind the scenes that's fascinating because more and more enterprises are trying to think about hosting applications in that manner. But how do we secure those applications? When we deploy them into somebody else's infrastructure, there's no server you can log into to see what's going on in the process listing. There are no web server logs that you probably have access to. Now it is all up to your application, perhaps, to operate to fulfill its business objective, but also to somehow create logs that allow you to investigate problems, be they security or operational issues. So th that's an interesting problem that I'm just now starting to get a little bit of exposure to and think about because the traditional solutions to security, like let's deploy an agent to lock down the server, or let's put up a firewall or, or next generation UTM appliance in front of our application, that no longer applies. So it's going to be one of those things where I'm sure we're going to stumble a few times to recognize what the problems are, but that'll create an opportunity for someone to come up with interesting solutions for this distributed code that's running all over the place that we are having a hard time uh, finding and locking down. Do you think, um, when, when you kind of look at, you know, there's, certainly there's going to be more of these next-gen applications and, and architecture and infrastructure designs, um, but... Do you think there's actually any types of industries or maybe verticals that might be more vulnerable these days than others that kind of stick out in your mind? Hmm, more vulnerable. Well, I can certainly think about industries that are under a greater degree of threat than, than others. Uh, the best example is perhaps financial services organizations. Are they more vulnerable well, that, I think, depends on the extent to which they're recognizing what those threats are and are willing to put up barriers against them. And, and in that case, it's hard to generalize. Uh, perhaps 
perhaps in the financial services industry, I, I would expect that smaller organizations might have a harder time attracting the appropriate security ta- talent to uh, safeguard them rather than larger organizations that, that can benefit from certain economies of scale. Uh, I, I uh, certainly have seen a, a lot of discussions regarding industrial control systems, which is a field that I don't know very well myself, but just speaking with colleagues and, and reading the stories in the news, it seems like those technologies are designed with purely operational longevity and stability in mind and securities and afterthought. And I suspect it's going to take a while for that mentality to change. And even when the mentality changes, you're going to still continue to have devices in the field that were set up perhaps 10 years ago and are probably going to be around for another decade or two. Again, I'm not an uh, an, an expert in that particular industry, but that seems, seems like something that's that's fascinating that is probably going to be continue to be somewhat problematic for us. And you just touched on an interesting point about the the talent and there's continues to be reports about there's, you know, there's a there's a lack of available talent in the industry when it comes to security that there's all these open job requisitions in the US and globally, you know, people throw out these these big numbers and almost zero unemployment in, in information security. Um, what are some of your thoughts on that about trying to get the right people trained and how we can kind of, you know, grow that base of, of talented people? Hmm. So, so maybe to to go to go to the beginning of your statement, uh, where you said that organizations can't organizations can't hire security professionals fast enough because uh, there's not enough trained individuals, and, and probably there's zero unemployment. It, it's hard because I'm sure someone listening to this podcast is in the process of looking for a job and is perhaps frustrated that they're unable to find the job that they want. So just because there's a need for a lot of security professionals doesn't mean that security professionals as individuals don't struggle to find the job that's right for them or that has the right compensation that they're looking for. And so I think that that is still a, a challenge. It's it's the challenge because there's just friction in the world, and, and and there's no pure transparency, right? If you're unhappy with the work that you're doing with the, with your job today, you're a security professional, and you feel like you don't like your environment, you don't like your manager, your you, your board. Can you just go and find yourself another job right away? Uh, maybe, or, or maybe maybe not, because you can't just announce to the world, "Hey, here I am, hire me." Right, you got to be a little bit stealthy about it, and and so the, I, I think that it's it's interesting to consider to what extent are employed security professionals happy with the work that they're they're doing, and if they're not happy, then why? Because presumably that shouldn't be the case. If there's indeed an unlimited number of other jobs they could take on, then they should all be employed happily. And I'm sure there's plenty of people that are disgruntled, not disgruntled, unhappy about their current job. So, so that's an interesting thing to consider. But overall, it is a good time to be a security professional because in general, you've got organizations that are looking for InfoSec uh, professionals. I think that in many cases, companies that are looking to hire security pros have unrealistic expectations regarding the level of expertise that they think they'll be able to find. It could be very specialized to their particular industry, and maybe that level of specialization almost doesn't exist. Um, 
or it could be just a number of skills that they put together on a job requirement that feels like it's really important to them, but maybe it's hard to find people who are both generalists and specialists in all of those areas. So in many cases, I think companies that are looking to hire security professionals need to truly understand what's important to them and, and, and write a job description that highlights that. You know, maybe you wish you could have had a full-stack security engineer if, if there is such a, a thing, and say that in your job description, but also clarify that actually what's truly important for you is experience with, I don't know, .NET application security architecture, for example. Um, and um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's the, the, the biggest challenge of organizations not willing to recognize that a perfect candidate that they have in mind when starting a search maybe doesn't exist or is highly unlikely to be found. And I'm not saying settle for the second best. I'm just saying understand truly what's important to you. And if you do, that means that you're more likely to find that individual. Also, another dynamic that is present when, when hiring individuals is understanding whether you truly need an expert or whether you're willing to hire a promising candidate that got started in the industry and, and seems like they have the right momentum, but you'll be willing to invest into training them, which seems like a, a much more, a much easier type of position to fill. There are more entry-level people than there are experts, but it's very hard for an organization to have the level of maturity related to providing that entry-level individual with the mentorship and with training necessary for them to truly exceed. And of course, the big concern is you're going to train them and they're going to leave, which is unlikely to happen in the first year, but you know, certainly a possibility, something that you need to recognize that these people are not going to be around forever. And how do you create an organization that recognizes that there's going to be a certain amount of turnover within your teams? And, and kind of uh, touching on another point that you kind of talked about a little bit was, you know, there are these people that are out there that might feel maybe stuck in their career. Um, they feel like they're not getting what they want. What would be some of the suggestions you give to them or possible career advice to them of what they could do um, to maybe change their situation or think about it differently? Hmm. It's, it's so hard to give generic career advice. Right? I mentioned earlier that, that I, I always uh, struggle asking somebody else for such advice uh, if they don't know my specific situation. And so it's easy for me to say, you know, look for new opportunities, talk to friends, ask around, understand what is truly interesting to you, uh, gain the skills that you feel you need to pursue another position. But it feels like it's, it's, very, it's a very generic advice. Uh, I do think that it's important for an individual to at least recognize when they should start looking for another job. Um, it's very traumatic if you're forced to look for another job because you're fired or laid off. But at least it's clear, I gotta find another job. It's very painful and, and, and economically and, and difficult and stressful. But at least you know, I'm looking for another job. But if, you're, if you have a current job and you're okay with it, kinda, but you feel like maybe you should look for something else, but you're too busy doing other things and you never get around to it, that becomes problematic because the next thing you know, it's, it's 10 years later and you're still doing the same thing that you've been doing when you began your current position. So I would say understand what you like about your current job and perhaps what you wish you could 
find somewhere else. Uh, the grass is always greener on the other side. And just and if you're thinking that I got to leave my job because um, my my boss doesn't value me and, and because I never have enough funding to do what I need to secure my environment and because they don't send me to training enough, well, what are the chances that another job is going to actually have the same the same um, uh, scenario? Um, so yeah, understand uh, what's important to you and, and, and perhaps determine whether what you want requires some additional training. So this is another very difficult dynamic of hiring as well as looking for a job. And I think it applies not just in security, but anywhere, certainly in IT, where a person doing the hiring wants to hire somebody who has the exact skills that the hiring manager needs. The problem, though, is that the person who is looking for a job wants a job that allows him or her to continue growing. And therefore, they want a job that will allow them to perhaps acquire the skills that they wish they had. And so that creates a mismatch. A manager wants to hire the skills that, you, that, that, that the person already has, but the person probably doesn't want that job. So um, it, it's tough. It goes back to, again, a hiring manager being willing to recognize that they need to take a chance on somebody and allow, and allow them to develop the skills that they want to have as part of their job. But on the other hand, the individual needs to be able to signal to a potential employer that I can do it. Right. Uh, here is the history of my successes. Here is how I started a job knowing something about, I don't know, uh, file system forensics. But I got re much, much better at it over the year of doing this job. And now I want a job doing, I don't know, memory forensics. Yeah, I'm not a memory forensics expert, but I became a file system forensics expert. Look at my history. I can do this for memory as well. And by the way, hire me because I'm less expensive than hiring a full-fledged memory forensics expert that probably won't come to you anyway, right? So that, that's, that's the idea. I suppose that's as much of a advice I can give without trying to be overly generic. You know, when you, when, when you look at, at being a hiring manager or, or maybe some of the, again, some of the other advice you might give to other people that are hiring, what, what are some of the maybe non-technical skills that you think um, are underappreciated or undervalued at times? Hmm. Well... I've certainly given this a lot of thought and, uh, and actually wrote a number of articles in my, on, my, on my blog on this topic, including the need to have strong communication skills. Uh, again, it's, it's almost, it feels cheesy to say it because, because we all recognize we've got to have strong communication skills because we don't live in a world by ourselves and we need to talk and correspond with other people. But even if your job involves sitting alone in a room typing at a computer all day long, to get that job, you probably need to be able to persuade the hiring manager and your future colleagues that you're a person worth working with. And that means learning how to understand their concerns, determine what their interests are, and be able to articulate what you want in a manner that positions you in, a bad light, in, in the best light. So communication skills are so important. And even beyond just the interviewing process, most security professionals don't sit alone in the basement typing away at a computer all day long. Whether you are doing penetration testing, which involves interacting with your internal colleagues or external clients, or whether you're doing incident response, which means interacting with all sorts of people within your organization as well as your vendors, you're always communicating. 
and it's really hard. It's really hard, I find. It's hard for me, for technically-minded individuals, to talk, especially with people who are not technical, and get their point across and not get frustrated and make sure that the other people don't get frustrated with you because you're just overwhelming them with jargon that they don't understand. Yeah, so to me, that, that, that becomes the most, I think, the most important skill beyond actually knowing what you're doing at a technical level, communication skills. Yeah, there was something I, I read years ago, and I've yet to dig up the book again, but it was something about you know, presenting findings, um, particularly around forensics and the litigation world, is that you know, the average jury has an eighth-grade-level education. Uh, judges can be you know, older and maybe not... Um, as well versed in some of the technology. So it's always trying to break things down into digestible mm-hmm. formats. Is there any kind of particular, I would say maybe methodologies or tricks or, or ways that you approach that problem that you think, okay, this is a, this is a conceptually tough problem. How do I make this understandable to maybe a layperson? Hmm. So I've got, I've got two things to say on this. First of all, in the way that I prepare for presentations, is I, I envision speaking with a friend who is not an IT person or who is not a security person. And as I play through my presentation in my mind, as well as when I'm actually doing the, the actual live presentation, I envision having that person and speaking with them one-on-one. And I find that while many of us might be might get nervous in a formal meeting presentation where you're presenting to your colleagues or to your boss, most of us are probably okay sitting down with a friend over a beer or coffee and just chatting with them. Hey, what are you doing? What's interesting at your work today? Well, you know, I looked at this case and it was fascinating because the the adversary tried to cover their tracks, but I looked at this artifact in the file system that Windows automatically maintains. You know, and you can chat with a friend and, and they say, wow, that's fascinating. And you're able to do it, presumably, because they know they're not technically minded and they're engaged with you. So I, I like to env- envision that kind of a person as my conversation partner when I prepare for and actually perform presentations. Uh, secondly, there is something that I, that I uh, learned and actually something that they, one of the uh, things that I remember from, from business schools when we took when I took a class on on presentation skills, and they said that a lot of people who are engineers at heart have a very specific presentation style in the way that they lay out the content of their talk that is actually counterintuitive to non-engineering audiences. And what I mean by that is that most people who are engineers tend to save their conclusion for the end. It's the big reveal. Because we know that as engineers, we need to justify our findings. We need to explain our process. And so if you have a 30-minute talk to give about your findings when you did a penetration test or when you performed a forensic investigation, then you might be inclined to save your conclusions to the very end and spend the first 25 minutes of your talk explaining the methodology that you used. But you know what? Your audience probably doesn't care. I mean, they, they need to know that you use solid methodology. And you will ultimately need to provide proof that your methodology was sound and therefore your findings are trustworthy. But that's the key problem, if you will, um, a bias of engineers towards saving the conclusion to the end. On the other hand, when you look at how business people give their presentation, it's the opposite. It is, 
here's the most important things. Now let's talk about the reasons for this and the implications, right? So my recommendation is consider the extent to which you can actually present the most important things in the beginning and then spend the time drilling into the, the intricacies of your findings and the soundness of your methods. You know, um, we, we touched on it briefly, but I mean, you know, with some of the training and certifications, what, what I mean, obviously you've achieved the GSE certification, which is a kind of difficult one, but um, I, I assume you, you, you look favorably on certifications in the industry and people have kind of mixed feelings at times on it. So what, what are just some of your just general thoughts about, you know, certification and how people should approach it possibly? I, I, I like certifications for many reasons, but I'm also skeptical of them for, for, for some others. And as, as a hiring manager, I look at a certification as a signaling mechanism. If a person achieved a particular certification that indicates to me that at least they were serious enough to study for the exam, that's not to be underestimated, whether you're talking about a, a deeply technical exam like GRAM, which is aligned to the malware analysis course that I teach, or whether you're looking at, at a broad certification like CISSP. Say what you wish about CISSP, it's a hard exam and it takes a while to study for it and at least I know that you took that time to prepare for the exam. That tells me something. It doesn't mean that a person without a certification doesn't know anything. It just means that it's, it's, it's yet another signal that I'm able to see that helps me weed out the noise. Because as a hiring manager, maybe I'm subjected to a lot of resumes that turn out to be representing not qualified individuals. So um, I think of a certification as a signaling mechanism. As any signal, it doesn't mean that the person who sends the signal actually possesses all the skills that were necessary to do the work that the certification represents. But it's a signal. It's, it shows that you're, you're at least care enough about the field to have studied for and taken the exam. As a person pursuing a certification, I enjoy going after a certification because it makes it easier for me to, to research and focus on the field that the certification exam is going to test me for. It's, it's a very specific milestone. It's very difficult for me, at least, to say, I want to know about... Uh, I don't know, let's talk. I want to know about file system forensics. Let, let me learn about that. that. That's very broad, that's very abstract. On the other hand, pursuing a certification in that topic gives me a specific curriculum, set, shows me some objective towards which I can work, and also at the end gives me some milestone that I can use to say, you know what, all of that time was worth it perhaps, assuming I passed the exam. And, and now I know a little bit more than I did before. So, so I like that specific milestone. Um, and uh, also, yeah, it, it is going to be yet another signal I can include when uh, trying to pursue my next job, and that's going to help me out probably as well. Okay. And kind of, uh, no, we're, we're coming up close on, on your time here. I'd appreciate it. But I guess if the last question I can think of is, if you, know, if you could time travel, and kind of looking back, and you can go back to your 25-year-old your self, I know it's unfair because we keep talking about advice and how you think about it, but what advice would you give to yourself as you are coming out of college and kind of entering the field, looking back now with the knowledge that you have now? Well, hmm. I think I would encourage myself to focus more 
than I did earlier on uh, professional relationships with other practitioners in the industry. It, it, it's it's not, not a technical thing, right? It, it's, um, it's, it's a softer side of, of our careers. But, but later, as I got to understand the importance of being able to learn from others and, and ask others for advice and, and just share informally lessons learned and, and observations about what's happening in the field, I, I, I've benefited so much from just having people around me whom I can just call and chat with when I'm tackling a particular problem or, or ask, ask somebody for advice or ask what they're seeing with respect to a particular threat or, or a particular technique that I am struggling with. And I didn't think that that was important at the time. Or it's not that I didn't think it was important. I never even thought about it when I was starting out on the field. And, uh, and, and I'm thinking, boy, if I, if I took the time to, to stay in touch with some of the people whom I've met earlier and, and, and have since then lost touch with, I would have been so much uh, more engaged now with those individuals and perhaps uh, would have been able to you know, share war stories and learn from them and perhaps help them out with something that they are doing right now. So that's, that's a difficult thing to do. It's, it's outside of many people's comfort zones because a lot of people who are doing hands-on technical security work are not great necessarily at... Uh, maintaining social ties with individuals unless we interact with them every single day. But so some, sometimes it's hard work, but it's, it's valuable. It, it makes the work more uh, fulfilling and it makes it easier to tackle difficult problems because you recognize that maybe you're not the only person dealing with them. And maybe some people have found solutions to the wheel that you're trying to re reinvent in your own uh, basement in front of that computer keyboard. Well, Lenny, thank you for your time today. Um, but it, it, where, where can people find you uh, online? I know you have a blog and Twitter. What, what's, what's yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty easy to, to find online. Just uh, go to my website, zeltser.com, Z-E-L-T-S-E-R. I have a, a blog that I've uh, maintained for, for many years, uh, lots of uh, actual uh, articles on some of the topics that we discussed right here are available on that, on that site. I'm also easy to find on Twitter. That's at Lenny Zeltser. And certainly people who are interested in malware analysis can uh, Google uh, my name uh, along with the words malware analysis and can find lots of uh, articles and webcasts that I've uh, recorded on this topic. And uh, maybe they can learn something from some of the challenges that I've tackled and figured out along the way. Great. Well, thank you very much, Lenny. Yeah, thank and you. And I'll put all this stuff in the show notes, too, so people can, uh, can find, you, uh, find you through there. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.